Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome. My name is Anthony Ryan. I'm the Marketing and Sales Director at Ignatius Press, and I'm very happy and honored to have with me today Sally Reed, our author of two books by Ignatius Press. We're going to discuss both of those today. The more recent one is called Annunciation. You'll probably see the graphic of that on your screen. I'll hold it up anyways. Beautiful cover by Frangelico. And then the other one is her conversion story, a very beautiful book called Night's Bright Darkness, a modern conversion story. So we're going to discuss both of those books with Sally. So Sally, welcome. Thanks for having me. Sally's coming all the way from Rome, ladies and gentlemen. So we really appreciate uh, her taking time to be with us. It's evening in Rome. So Sally, um, just a quick little background on Sally before we start. Sally is a poet, a longtime poet, actually, and uh, an author of two books with Ignatius Press. She also has three books of poetry that she's published. Uh, as I mentioned, she currently lives outside of Rome, and she is a poet in residence with the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs. So I thought, well, that is very intriguing. So I thought maybe we'd start by asking Sally to tell us about the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs and you being a poet in residence there. Could you tell us a little bit about that? A long way to roam from here. Maybe we're having some intercontinental interference here. We'll see if she can come back. So in the meantime, uh, as I mentioned, we are talking about both of her books, Denunciation, most recent, and this is a story about her her uh, long kind of letter to her daughter, used the Annunciation as a template for her young daughter who's about to make her first communion, and uh, using the Annunciation to help her understand the importance of uh, faith, and the Annunciation is kind of... Um, template for the steps of our spiritual life. The other book is her conversion story, Night's Bright Darkness, a modern conversion story. First book we published. And she um, was a, an atheist. She was a staunch atheist. And then she uh, had this great conversion story. So here she is. She's back with us. So I'm so sorry. Our, in, our internet connection just, just fell. But it's back. Oh, good. Very good. Well, so uh, why don't we go back to, I was asking you, uh, I mentioned that currently you're a poet and resident at the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs. You're going to tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, sure. Well, when I converted, the priest who was um, who guided me through the conversion um, is called Father Gregory Hrinkiu, and he's a Byzantine rite priest. And he happened to be in the same town um, as where I live now, which is Santa Marinella, near Rome. Um and he was actually in exile from the Ukraine, where he'd been fighting on the front lines against corruption in the church. And he's had to leave the country for his life. I mean, seriously, he had threatened to kill him. Oh. So he wound up in Santa Marinella um, with many troubles. And um, he met this crazy atheist woman who was determined to torment him. <laughs> A crazy um, atheist woman from England. Yeah. And I really gave him a hard time, you know, to begin with anyway. Um, and 
what happened was that particular year, it was in the March that I was an atheist. And by the December, I was received into the, into the church. And he had discerned through that time that he should uh, leave his order as a monk and actually become a hermit, like set up his own religious order. So it was in the October of that year that he became a hermit. And it's the hermitage is called the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs. Mm. And he kind of set up the hermitage in like, you know, canonically and roughly what he wanted to do as he was finishing his doctorate. And then after that, he went back to Canada, which is where he's from, where he could um, be in an eparchy with a, with a bishop kind of, uh, you know, over him, as it were. And he's still there now. And he, in the hermitage is, is a wonderful thing. I mean, he's, he, he, he goes um, a middle way between contemplation and action. So he, um, he teaches and he preaches and he does, he leads a completely monastic life as well. Um, Anyway, when I converted as a poet, I was I was very worried because my poetry was always very secular and very shocking. And I didn't see how my publisher was ever going to publish anything that was any different. Um, and in fact, I was kind of proved right about that. So I remember I said to Father Gregory, you know, I think that I should be your poet in residence of the Hermitage because I can I can write poems and I can publish them on your website and I can write for your feast days. And it'll kind of give me a place of belonging. Well, I don't really know what to do with my with my poetry. And that's kind of how it went. And then everything that I write, he he does read and kind of checks for, you know, is it theologically sound and, you know, how is that? And he's he's very helpful. Well, that's great. That's beautiful. He's been obviously a godsend in your life. And uh, so, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about this book first, Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. And he figures uh, prominently in that story. That's why I wanted to ask you about him. So maybe we could begin, Sally, um, just you know, you write beautifully about your conversion in this book. It's obvious that you're a poet, your writing is beautiful, telling your story is, uh, it's not just a conversion story, it's just beautiful writing. And, um, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing, uh, every conversion story is unique. Yours is, is uh, unique um, in that you were a staunch atheist, you were anti-Catholic, you were a kind of a, a kind of a very strong feminist, etc., and you had this kind of um, nine electric months, as you put it, of a journey into the Catholic Church. I was wondering if maybe you could just uh, give us a short you know, an overview of that conversion story, that journey, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it after you do that. Yeah, well, um, I was already a published poet, and I know, as you say, I was very anti-Catholic Church, um, but I was living near to Rome, so I was kind of au fait with churches and au fait with Catholic art, and strangely, I always had this um, fascination with the figure of Mary, and I always had a picture of Mary in my house, but I viewed her from a kind of a feminist standpoint, that, you know, she was trapped in the Catholic Church and she should be set free, etc. cetera. Um, and I hated the church so much because, you know, it was about that time, apart from anything else, that, you know, the abuse stories were really starting to come out and they were horrific, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. And I was, I was actually writing a book, I, be, I was beginning to write a book with a doctor about female sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. And I was going to be interviewing lots of women about their bodies and about their sexuality, etc. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to interview Catholic women and Muslim women and Jewish women, as well as every other kind. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't get any of my Catholic friends in town to talk to me, strangely. 
And so in the end, out of desperation, I got in touch with this priest, Father Gregory, who everybody said was really cool and really funny and, you know, et cetera. And I thought, well, maybe he could put me in touch with a nun or a woman who would be willing to talk to me for this book. So I wrote him this email. It was quite a shocking email, actually. Perhaps I shouldn't say it on the air. <laughs> it was very blunt. And, and I thought that he would either be angry or he'd ignore me. You know, I, I, it was just a long shot. Um, but he answered me with great humor. And, and I realized that he was very intelligent. And I also knew something about his story, about the fact that he was in exile because he'd been fighting corruption. So I thought, well, you know, how is it possible that somebody so intelligent and, and nice and kind could be, could be in the church and be a priest? You know, how is this possible? So I started to ask him questions. And, and then what happened was, um, it's funny because it's almost like there's the difference between what we do and then God's action, which is so startling that just comes from the outside, if you like, that we, you know, we have no control over. And it was during those discussions with Father Gregory that I suddenly, I had three kind of separate experiences through that spring that I didn't realize until much later were of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son. Mm. And the particularly the latter two, the Holy Spirit and, and Christ, those experiences were you know, they made my hair stand on end. Mm. Um, perhaps I'll, I'll talk about the final one with Christ. Um, I had I had come to accept that God existed through these two previous experiences, but I was still very anxious. It was a very, very anxious time for me. Um, mm. I felt very unsettled in myself and I didn't know what I thought anymore. And the world looked very scary and there was just this faceless God. And I didn't know if it was the God of Islam or, or the God of Judaism. I didn't know what God this was. Yeah. And I didn't want it to be the Christian God, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I um, I was going to pick up my daughter from school and, and her school was next to this little Carmelite church by the sea. And I just went into the church just to, just to think. And... Um, and when I was in there, I, I just started to cry because I was just so churned up and there was so much going on. And as I cried, I looked up at this icon of Christ's face and I said out loud, if you're there, you have to help me. And this, this presence just seemed to come towards me and almost physically lift me up. And it was just as though, like I say in the book, it was as though I had amnesia and someone walked into the room that totally gave everything back to me. I suddenly knew who I was and why I was. Mm. And from that moment, mm. I was a Christian. So in a nutshell, that was how I came to God. So that's beautiful. Um, yeah, so that was really like a mystical experience. I mean, um, yeah. it yeah. was a, obviously it was an experience. It wasn't just a, a thought that you had or something. And that, I would say, kind of makes me, and I'd like you to comment on this, say, really that our faith is um, essentially about a, a person, Jesus Christ. And it's really about a relationship with him. When you blow all the smoke away, it's not just about what we believe, the doctrines, you know, the church, all that's important. But it sounds to me like your experience really just connect you directly with Christ. And that's really the heart of what we believe about as Catholics. Yeah, absolutely. And um what you say about it being a mystical experience, you know, it, it's so true in the sense that, and this is true of many converts, you know, when you get deeper into the faith and when you pray, in it, you're kind of steeped in it. But when you're coming at it and you don't even believe, kind of, you know, you're just at the very beginning and I wasn't even praying, when these things happen, they're so concrete. Um, and it, somebody really does walk into the room and it's, it's just um, the relationship with Christ is central. 
and therefore the relationship with the Eucharist, because I, I realized really quickly that the way to be close to Christ was to have the Eucharist. And that's what led me to the Catholic Church. Yeah, that's beautiful. You mentioned, uh, I saw that in your book when I was looking it over again before this interview, you know, that, um, you know, Mary received Christ into her body um, at the Annunciation, you know, uh, the word became flesh. And you say, and we receive Christ into our body as well through the Eucharist. And it's just that, you know, something we should never, ever get used to. We should never, ever take that for granted because it's just a a stunning uh, reality, the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the, the Annunciation really was the kind of the first Eucharist. And that's why Mary, Mm. I think, is so special to me that she, she had that reality first and God, in a sense, trusted her, you know, trusted her so much that it's, it's, it's Christ's first touch to a person. And in touching all the way through scripture is so important. Like, I mean, the way that Christ heals, it's through touch. People go and touch him. They want to be near him. Right. And it's the feast of Mary Magdalene today, of course, where, you know, she wants to touch him. And he finally says, no, you know, I have to go to the mm. father. Um, mm. But then we're given the Eucharist. And that's what's just so beautiful about Catholicism. Yeah. No, it's very fitting, as you say. Today's the feast of St. Mary Magdalene, and, and those comments are very uh, timely. So, Sally, the title of your book is intriguing, A Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. I, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what does that title mean? Where does it come from? Well, it comes really from, um, in the beginning of the book, there's, a, there's an excerpt from a poem by Henry Vaughan, and there's a right. line which says, there is in God, some say, a deep but dazzling darkness. Right. And I always loved that line, you know, long before I converted. And mm-hmm. um, and when I was converting, I read a lot of St. John of the Cross. Okay. And that that kind of um, image of the dark night and the via negativa, even though I'd had so many signs, <laughs> it was very important to me because it seemed to me a very mature way to understand faith that really we are going to be go- going through it in the dark. And yet there's something incredibly lit about that darkness. It's almost like... Mm. It's so bright, you know, when something's so bright, it's dark. So it's that kind mm-hmm. of paradox. And there's also, um, there's actually a psalm. I was re- I was praying the psalms after Night's Bright Darkness came out and I came across, I wish I had the reference. There's a psalm which says, you know, that combines those words mm-hmm. about the bright darkness of the night. Um, so, yeah, it's to kind of combine those those elements. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. And um, whoever whoever designed our cover... Uh, if you can see it here, I thought they really kind of captured it. Yeah. Um, also, you mentioned John of the Cross. So you entered the church on December 14th, the Feast of John of the Cross. And you just talked a little bit about the importance of his writings to you. Um, did you pick that day uh, purposely because it was his feast day or did that just happen by providence? <laughs> it was so funny. I didn't pick it because um, it was Cardinal Cotier who agreed to receive me and he picked the date. And I didn't even realize it was the Feast of St. John of the Cross. And when I went, when I got to Mass that day and there were all these kind of references to St. John of the Cross and the readings, I sat there thinking, huh, you know, that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God doesn't yeah. leave anything to chance. There are no coincidences in the Catholic faith. Um, so then um, you, um, you say that as a Catholic, I see poetry and art in general as the best way, apart from prayer, of communicating with the divine. So talk about how you see poetry as being communicating with God. 
Well, yeah, this is a kind of pet theory of mine. Well, I, I hate to use the word theory because I because I think it's very true and very real. You know, God is the ultimate poet. And um, mm. when you read Dante, which I've done a little bit of, I'm not an expert, but um, the, you Dante talks about God creating nature and then the artist being like God's grandchild. The, the, the poet creates then from nature into art. So we're kind of, we're mimicking God in that way. And I think that, if you really look at poetry and I guess music and, and all kind of other types of art, what we're trying to do as artists is to see the connections between things and to see the form in the chaos. And God does that all the time. I mean, that's what God does. He makes form out of chaos. He sees every tiny connection. So I think that as artists, um, we're trying to always see with the eyes of God. And I think that's why artists are often so tortured um, and I think probably it's a, it's a very special kind of torture being an artist that doesn't believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you experienced that as well before you became a, a believer. So, um, so it kind of makes me wonder what was your reaction uh, when you realized, as you said later, that Catholics had the mystics, the poets, the authors, the doctors of the church, the saints, the art, and the mass. I mean, that must have been an incredible uh, revelation to you. It was. And, you know, I remember saying years before my conversion, I remember moaning and saying, you know, oh, I've, I've read like the whole canon pretty much. And there's no, there are no more surprises. You know, I wish that I had yet to discover Shakespeare. I wish I had yet to discover Keats or somebody, you know. And then when you enter the church, you realize there's a whole world that nobody told you about. And I still haven't got through it. I mean, for a start, there's the Bible. You know, it's crazy to think if you haven't read the Bible, then you haven't studied literature, you know. So there was all that to discover. Um, and then the poetry, you know, like, you know, John of the Cross's poetry is just, is phenomenal. And then the, all, like, you know, Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich and all these amazing, amazing books. So that's yeah, been it, a real thrill. Yeah, I mean, it's the treasure we have as Catholics is uh, it's uh, it's infinite, really. It's uh, you just you just kind of uh, touched on that. Um, how, how would you advise um Christians, but maybe Catholics especially, to evangelize atheists. I mean, you were an atheist, and, you know, there's a lot of atheists today. Um, what advice would you give to us about how to approach atheists in terms of uh, trying to present them with the faith or witness for the faith? I don't think that you can really argue with people. I mean, I think that some people have a gift for doing that. Kind of apologists <clears throat> can be very um, cerebral about it. But from what I witnessed, um, the people who had the biggest influence on me were Father Gregory and my friend Christina, who lived in Santa Maranella at that time. And she's a very devout Catholic woman. And she never tried to convert me or tried to argue with me. She, she just lived her faith. And it was so striking to me to see that it had far, mm -hmm. far greater impact because people really aren't ready to hear until they're ready to hear. Yeah. You know? And I remember Father Gregory actually said to me, um, he said, when I was going through, you know, who is God and what do I do? And before I'd even had my experience with Christ, he, he said to me, you know, only Christ will convert you. I, I can't. And he, he didn't say anything else. Um, yeah. And how, how true that and right that is, because it really has to be, it has to come from the source itself. So a witness, our witness is probably the best way we can bring people at least an interest in the faith. And I know in your in your story, you talk about the Catholics that you knew, that your daughter played with their children, and that you interacted a lot with Catholics, even when you were an atheist, or maybe you were an agnostic by that time, I don't know. But I mean, I think, you know, their influence, at least from what I remember reading in your book, 
definitely made an impact on you. The way they lived, that God was so close to them in their daily lives. I and mean, you were amazed by how God was just a part of their, just their, their, their the details of their, their lives, their family life, their social life, everything. Yeah, I was very struck by that. And I, and I didn't want to spend time with them. Don't get me wrong at the beginning. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I was, I had this, I had my daughter and I was desperate for her to have little friends who spoke English at that time. And so I kind of latched onto them and I was horrified when I realized that all of these women who had all these children, I realized that what, ba what bound them together was the fact they were all Catholic. And when I realized that how kind of, you know, fully Catholic they were and their views about abortion and all the rest of it, I was horrified. And I had to make a decision, like, do I do I carry on, like, going there for coffee or do I just draw back? And the only yeah. reason I carried, carried on going was because of my daughter. But, yeah. you know, but I, I liked, I truly liked the women very, very much from the, from the, from the off. And yeah. And it was a pleasure then to spend time with them. And, and then I, I just kind of imbibed, you know, what yeah. they were like about their faith. Yeah, I think that's a great. Um, I think that's a great example for us that you they just befriended you. You you became friends with them. It wasn't they weren't trying to cram the faith down your throat or or really trying to convert you. At least that's not the impression I got from reading your book or what you just said. But they were really just living their faith. They were they were befriending you, uh, and I think that's the best way to win people over. Yeah, and they they never criticized my. Um my views or who I was, yeah. never, never. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a really good lesson, you know, and I, and I did Absolutely. say some pretty horrendous things to them as well. I mean, I was very outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you were pretty, uh, you were pretty um, shocking in your younger life as a poet from what I can, what I've read about some of the, you were pretty straightforward and upfront. So let, let's jump into the, the book, the Annunciation. This is the next yeah. book. Um, and that beautiful image of uh, Frangelico, uh, which uh, is on the wall in your house, I think above the bed of your daughter, you said. Um, and let me just read a quick little uh, description of this book before we start. Um, when you became a Catholic, your daughter Flo was only four years old, but it did not take long for her to become aware that many friends and relatives did not share her mother's newfound faith. This consciousness of two worlds led to a great many doubts in flow and some rebellion. Two nights before her first communion, she suddenly questioned whether she should receive the Eucharist. Sensing the precarious nature of faith in an overwhelmingly secular world, Sally Reed began writing down the compelling reasons for holding on to both God and the church. Taking the Annunciation as her template, she explored common experiences of the spiritual life as she meditated on each part of the story recorded in Luke's gospel. So, I mean, that's beautiful. When did you first realize the extent of the inspiration of the Annunciation in your own life first, Sally? It was a really gradual thing. Um, I mean, I remember living in London as an atheist, you know, years ago. I'm talking about 1997. And um, I was in the National Gallery in London and I was with a friend who, you know, wasn't religious either. And I remember she said to me, what's your favorite picture in the gallery? And I took her straight to Fra, Fra Lippi's Annunciation. And I said, like, this painting is my favorite painting in the oh. world. And I, I oh. was just entranced by it. And I, and I wrote poems about the Annunciation that were really shockingly blasphemous, actually. Um, because oh, I was wow. so intrigued by the situation and, and wanting to know the truth of it. And then when I converted, um, it's interesting because Christ was so, you know, is so central to my conversion that Mary has always been something kind of perhaps a little bit on the side. 
but she's been so faithful to me and she's she's just been so steady and I realized almost after I'd written the book Annunciation I was like my goodness I've even written a book called Annunciation now it's almost like a surprise to me and I realized it is it's an incredibly important um topic for me and I think it's because of it's that moment where everything changes you know where um God comes to us in a way that is you know unique and unprecedented and never to be repeated and it's really awe-inspiring and humbling, and I think it's a, it's a, an inheritance that we we risk kind of trashing, because people don't realize how amazing it is to be for God to be so familiar with us. Yeah, you know, in Ignatius Press, we say the beautiful prayer of the Angelus, which is really um, everything about it comes right from that uh, story in, in Scripture, and the you know the key phrases and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and i think yeah. that's what you were kind of honing in on is that everything changed uh in in the world and history for humanity story of salvation began uh the word became flesh and dwelt among us our lady could have said uh, no and that you know, that wouldn't happen i mean she had free will but she said yes and the word became flesh so um this uh, book, The Annunciation, A Call to Faith in a Broken World, is it's a letter to your daughter to help her and kind of guide her um, as she was struggling with her faith and to receive her first Holy Communion. Uh, I'm wondering how it may identify, though, with the parental side. How, how would, um, you know, how about the parents? How would this book, um, you know, how would this book, be identified for parents as well. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously something that a, a child or a young person could learn a lot from because it's something you directed towards your daughter, but what about the parental side of it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously the book's written for somebody who's, who's at least 14, I would say, because the, the issues are very deep, but I, I think mm-hmm. that, um, I, I, what I learned from my daughter was that your children have such a deep understanding of the faith and understanding of the issues. And I think it's a huge mistake for us to make, to oversimplify things. Um, I mean, I, I taught catechism um, for a while, a couple of years ago, and um, they wouldn't really let me do what I wanted to do because I wanted to really go into, you know, what is prayer? And I wanted to talk about the veil and I wanted uh-huh. to talk about, you know, why some people would have a mystical experience and why some people wouldn't and that kind yeah. of thing. And the people in the church were like, you can't do that. It's too complicated. And That's I thought, well, you know, yeah. And I think, why is that complicated? Cause I'm sure that most children think as my daughter still says, she says, I pray, I don't get anything. You know, I don't feel anything. Um, and yeah. we need to think, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about the dark night and perseverance and the via negativa, you know, in, in a, in an accessible way. And then, you know, children aren't stupid. And, and they, they say things like, you know, as my daughter did, that there's so much suffering in the world. So how, you know, how can there be God? Why should I pray? Bad things yeah. still happen. So why should we pray? So I think it's really important. And so from a parent's perspective, I think that it's important to be upfront and to go deep. And I, try, yeah. I think that what I try to do in the book is to be gentle about that. I mean, it's very, you know, it's really written for her. So I didn't, I wanted everything to be gentle, but I wanted it to be at the same time, very direct and very honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, you say we underestimate children, how deep they really are. Their spiritual lives are deep. Um, you know, as our Lord said, out of the mouths of babes will come, you know, incredibly profound things. Children think deeply about these things. 
I think because we dumb things down as they get older, that that depth kind of uh, gets covered over. So I agree with you. It's unfortunate that where you were teaching religious ed, they didn't allow you to go deeper with the children. That's a big mistake that we make. Um, so um, I really liked how you uh, broke this book into five basic chapters, um, breaking up the enunciation into kind of five chapters or phases. And you talk about those as kind of the phases of our spiritual life, those five sections of the book. Can you comment on that a little bit about how that relates to the five phases of our spiritual life? Yeah, well, there each chapter is is to, uh, is um is a verse from Luke is is a verse from the Annunciation. So basically, the first one, and he came to her. So this is really obviously the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And I, what I really look at in that is that I think that for for a lot of people, there is this sense of Christ coming to them. And, and in fact, a convert said, said that to me the other day. She was talking about her experience of, of conversion. She was a cradle Catholic, but there was a point at which she suddenly became on fire with the faith. And I, I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, I was in church one day and, and he came to me. You know, so I think that it's about that kind yeah. of whoosh, yeah. you know. But at the same time, the chapter looks at what happens when we don't have those experiences, when it's much mm -hmm. more you know, muted or, you know, we come to the faith in a different way. So I talk about the veil and about prayer and about what happens when we don't feel anything and, and you know, what does that mean and how can we kind of keep the faith alive? So that's kind of the first part. Um, mm -hmm. And then when the angel says, you know, do not be afraid. And this is a big favorite with people because everyone's afraid. <laughs> yeah. um, and God tells us not to be afraid hundreds of times in the Bible yeah. and then in, in private revelation as well. So what does that really right. mean? when scary things do happen. And if you look at Mary's own story, there was much to be afraid of, actually. Right. For a mother, you know, there's a lot to be afraid of. So what does God, what do those words mean? And so I look at, you know, the story of Chiara Corbella, who's a, a Roman saint to be, because um, she lived a life of tremendous suffering and really look at suffering and how how God enters into suffering and how God suffers with us, etc. And then the next one, um, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, um, is really about identity, because that's a huge one for this generation is, you know, who am I? And this idea of creating an identity online and the way that we're seen by our peers and the way that we're seen by our followers. So it's about knowing who we are in God. Um, yeah, that's, that chapter is kind of interesting because I have several kind of theories running through that. And my, my favorite really is about the fact that um, – because God touches us with the Eucharist, we also touch Christ with the Eucharist. And it's about the fact that we are consolers of Christ. You know, we're the daughters and mothers and brothers of Christ. And our job is not just to receive his love, but to love him. You know, yeah. we are the handmaids of the Lord. Huh. Um, and then comes, um, um, let it be to me according to your word, where I really look at vocation. It's about, you know, how we know what God needs us to do and wants us to do and and how how can we listen to God? How can we cultivate that sense of listening? Um, the idea that vocation isn't something that's just given to you, like, oh, yeah, you know, I got it in the mail. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a mother. A vocation is something that changes actually moment by moment also, but it's something that's so tailor-made to your soul, to your essence. Um, I mean, to give you an example, um, I really like the fact that 
somebody who interviewed me about Night's Bright Darkness said a while ago, um, I used to be a psychiatric nurse and I said, I miss nursing. And she said, oh, I oh. think Night's Bright Darkness is actually another way of your nursing. And oh. I thought, actually, that's very true. Yeah. You see, it's like you can be a nurse, you can be a writer, but it can kind of be the same thing, but, but it's about my vocation. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, as a nurse, you're taking care of mainly people's physical health. And as a writer, you're nursing well, really mental. more of their spiritual mental. health. It was mental health for nursing. I was a psychiatric nurse. So oh, mental health. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, okay, I know you talked about wrapping bodies at the beginning of the book and how this Irish nurse had showed you about the importance of really treating, um, you know, the dead bodies with incredible respect and how she taught you to, and that was your first experience. I think you mentioned at the beginning of your uh, conversion story about, you know, working with, um, pre, you know, the dead, preparing dead bodies. And, uh, it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, all, all nurses have to have to lay out the dead and stuff, but in the end of the day, I was, I was a psychiatric nurse. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I think it's the final chapter. Yeah. The final chapter of the book is, um, and the angel departed from her. And this huh. is a favorite of mine because I think that's such a poignant phrase in scripture that we don't dwell on, but it, it illustrates the fact that, you know, Mary was gifted with this incredible experience of God, which was unique and phenomenal, but the angel departed from her. And so she was then left on her own. And so it's that chapter really deals with, you know, what about when we simply cannot sense God in our lives and what do we do and the various ways in which we can lose our way. And, you know, particularly with things like depression, which can really kind of cut that sense yeah. of God being there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, um, Sally, the uh, conversation has been beautiful. Time flies when you're having these beautiful conversations. I'd like to keep going on, but um, I think we'll have to wrap it up here. And at least we've uh, given people a little taste of both of your books. And um, I hope that you're working on another book for Ignatius Press. Uh, we'd love to continue to do more books with you. You're a beautiful writer. Your writings are so um, beautiful, so thoughtful, so profound. Uh, so thank you for joining us today all the way from uh, Rome, outside of Rome. And uh, again, I want to, the book is The Annunciation, A Call to Faith in a Modern World, and then the, her conversion stories, Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. They are available at ignatius.com uh, or uh, at your local bookstore, or you can call our 800 number, 1-800-651-1531 to get these books. So Sally Reed, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to visit with you. Thanks for having me. God bless you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.